Fawn on injuries are often seen as the bread and butter of modern ambulance work. Somewhere between 7 and 9% of our calls are to elderly fallers, and this can often be seen as menial or boring work, affectionately termed Nan Downs. And it's fair to say that attending these types of calls are unlikely to be the reason that many of us join the job. There's most certainly the risk that staff become blasé when attending these calls, as somewhere between 40 and 60% of these patients are discharged from ambulance care without requiring hospital. We shouldn't rest on our laurels, however, as an estimated 30 to 35% of over 65s who live in their own homes and up to 50% of over 65s who live in a residential care facility will suffer a fall in a 12-month period. Falls are known to be the leading cause of injury in this age group, with 5% of fallers suffering from a fracture, and 70% of accidental deaths in the over 75s being attributed to a fall. In the modern day NHS, the sequelae of falls is often increased to include pressure sores, pneumonia, hypothermia, dehydration, and in extreme cases, rhabdomyolysis and AKIs, due to prolonged times on the floor. So as a result, it's important that we get this group of patients managed correctly. This week we're looking at the do's and don'ts of fall injury assessment and management and hopefully we'll dispel some myths that are still existing in paramedic practice. Ambulance general broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. General Broadcast is a free online learning resource aimed at UK-based student paramedics and newly qualified paramedics. We're hoping the podcast will provide a useful directory integrating care-based practice examples with the accompanying theory. The podcasts are short summaries of topics designed to refresh memories and provide links to other resources for further learning. My name's Josh, I'm a trainee specialist critical care paramedic. My name is Simon, I'm a trainee advanced clinical practitioner in emergency medicine and former specialist paramedic in urgent and emergency care. So today, Simon, we're going to be talking about elderly fallers. Uh, and as we said in the intro, this is a group of patients that we are potentially treating with quite a blasé attitude and, and not appreciating them for the serious event that they are. As we said, 5% of of elderly fallers result in a fracture. This is normally a Collie's fracture or a neck of femur fracture. And falls are the cause of 95% of all neck of femur fractures in the UK. We know the resultant outlook for, for neck of femur fractures is quite poor, with up to a third of patients dying at the 12-month point post-injury. I think we also need to remember that um, falls have a, a significant impact on silver trauma, which is not very often taught in, in paramedic training. Um, but actually, it does have quite a high mortality rate. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's really important that we manage this group of patients correctly. So in the accompanying article that we've got for this podcast, we've started it with a case study. Uh, the article is available on our website, which is generalbroadcast.org. Uh, and this is a case study that I'm sure many of us are, are quite familiar with and able to relate to. Uh, which is a 78-year-old patient who's fallen at home and activated their care line. Um, the the call's been upgraded because of the length of time that they've been on the floor, and it's not unusual for this group of patients to be on the floor for up to 
six hours as, as a matter of course but i'm i'm sure we've all had it where a call's come through at the start of the shift uh we've been stood down from it and then we've ended up going to them as our last job of the shift 12 hours or 13 hours later yeah and as a result of that actually it, it complicates matters because what would have been a simple um full and potential non-injury that we could have kept that patient out of hospital and at home and, and well you know has now turned into a long lie and in which case we now need to run bloods and there's a risk of things as you alluded to earlier about rhabdomyolysis and AKI and it will actually result in a, in a hospital admission and potentially you know a, a patient that didn't need to go to ED being taken just because we haven't got there quick enough. Yeah definitely and I think that's probably why uh a lot of trusts and certainly the most local trusts to myself are, are looking at the way that we manage and categorize these calls and are, are really cottoning on to the adverse events and the additional damage that that the ambulance service can be doing by delaying uh, getting to these patients so so let's talk about the assessment of this chap so we've got our 78 year old male who's perhaps been on the floor for say three hours uh, when we arrive at this patient what's the first thing we're going to be looking to do or what's the first uh, step of assessing this patient that we uh, will be looking for so I think um, I think this is where uh, quite a, a few people go, go go wrong they they sort of see it as a simple fall and people just go in and the, their history is a little bit vague but they they sort of ask the patient you know what did what happened and they go oh, I think I fell over and actually they don't really probe into that any further and they just sort of accept that they fell over and actually that there's there's lots to it so I think we really need to explore the history exactly why that person fell can they actually remember falling you know what caused them to fall did they lose consciousness did they have any prodromal symptoms such as dizziness chest pain shortness of breath headache abdominal pain back pain just to name a few yeah, absolutely. Um, because we we are very quick to uh, to assume that uh, it's been, and I'm going to put inverted commas, a mechanical fall, and we'll come on to talk about that in a second. But we're very very quick to assume that that it's a mechanical fall, and and actually a lot of our elderly fallers are quite keen to play down the exact history um, because they. Uh, they don't want to lose their independence rather counterintuitively. They don't want to perhaps admit that there may have been a little bit of, of, of dizziness or, or in fact, they don't actually remember how they ended up on the floor. Uh, up to a third of over 70 fallers will suffer some form of syncope and, and 30% of these will will have poor memory of the events leading up to or, or a complete loss of uh, memory of events leading up to the fall. So uh, it's really, like you say, it's really important for us to to really break down the, the, the history and, and develop a clear picture and a clear story of, uh, of the accurate details that the patient can remember. I think we also need to be careful of of, of bystanders and um, maybe family members giving the history as well for the patient. It's always vital that we speak to the patient wherever possible. Um, and I would always collaborate that with speaking to the bystanders. So how I normally approach uh, an elderly person that's fallen in a public place, especially when there's several people around, is I will walk straight up to the patient and before anyone can sort of say what had happened I, I will I'll approach a patient and I'll introduce myself and then I'll ask their name and I'll say right before these nice people tell me what they saw and happened why don't you tell me what you can remember because then it makes the bystanders feel that they're not being snubbed as a better way of putting it um, 
and the, the, the person can then tell me exactly what they do or don't remember. The risk of doing it the other way, if you listen to the bystanders, is that they might say, well, we saw the patient trip on the curb or we saw the patient collapse. And then the patient who can't remember will just use that information to fill in the history mm. themselves. Yes, absolutely. And and it can happen the other way in, in residential addresses when when sons or daughters have perhaps uh, got to, to the patient before us uh and the 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 patient will say oh i just tripped on the rug there and and actually the son or daughter will will say well actually that's not what you told me when i arrived an hour ago or two hours ago and it could be that that they've forgotten what happened or or again they are just trying to play it down so uh, i i'm very much like you i was uh fortunate enough turning up on a on a dca to be able to split split the patient and and, and the members of the public or, or the the family members away from one another uh, and whilst i might take the the history from um from the family member my student can be taking the history from the from the patient and we can kind of compare notes and make sure we've got a an accurate picture or if we've got any discrepancies and then ask ourselves why have we got those discrepancies yeah, that's really good and I think it's really important whenever we look at um, taking a history that we do involve everyone in that because people want to feel listened to and I think when we look at complaints to not just the ambulance service but to all healthcare professionals one of the one of the most common things that people complain about is, is attitude and not feeling listened to. So I think it's really important that we engage with not only the patient, but all the you know but, but bystanders and with family and friends and whoever's there, carers, and, and seek their opinion on the matter too. It's always important to get, get everyone's opinion. Um, so I would ask the patient about how the events that led up to how they got on the floor. So what were they doing at the time? How did they feel? Did they actually remember falling? Did they actually remember hitting the ground? Because they can be two different things. Um, I'd ask, how did they feel when they were on the ground? What did they land on? La- the landing surface is really important. Obviously, carpet and or a bed will be softer and less uh, and more likely to provide protection than falling onto, say, a concrete floor. Were they inside? Were they outside? You know, we're starting to think about the environmental things that can affect them. Were they able to get up? Because obviously sometimes we do go to people who have got up from a fall. So we need to establish how they got up. Did they get themselves up or did a family member or friend pick them up? Did a carer pick them up? And how did they summon help? And if they didn't summon help immediately, why didn't they summon help? Yeah, that's all really, really valuable stuff. Uh, and I've put on the article on the website a, a number of medical differentials to consider that that uh, we might just want to read into a little bit more or, or ensure that we're uh, getting the pertinent negatives to to exclude things like the reflex syncopes that might be involved base vagal uh, or situational uh, syncopes it could be cardiac syncopes we need to consider that and listen to heart sounds because um, patients with n- new added murmurs uh, may be maybe at risk of that uh, or it could just be something as simple as intoxication i don't think i appreciated before uh before coming into this job quite uh, how many um, or, or quite what p- proportion of, of the elderly population has a very high alcohol intake uh, and when you put that on top of some other comorbidities that might affect mobility that's the the perfect recipe for for a fall yeah I agree completely and I actually I, I think that it's it is something that that when I was a more junior parameter that I um 
omitted from my histories as well is you know I'd always ask you know the young people and and middle-aged people or patients that I went to that had a a primary complaint that could have been gastro or alcohol related but actually I think it's really important that we establish this in, in the elderly population as well because not only does it give us increased risk for the for, for of falling it also could worsen um, the consequences of a fall so we've spoken about how we need to have a, a an open mind for the other differentials for a fall and we've spoken about the the detailed history taking that we need to take uh, to rule in or rule out some of those differentials but a high proportion of of the calls that we go to uh, that our elderly fallers are what's termed the, the mechanical fall and I'm putting that in inverted air quotes again um, so what are your thoughts on the term uh, mechanical fall so I used to use this term um but I, I yeah me too i in fact i was probably one of the worst for it prior to writing this the article for this yeah um uh, I'm, from, I'm converted now from doing a lot of research and and obviously and, and speaking to um specialists and, and geriatricians i think that actually it's a term that's falling out of favor um it's mentioned quite a lot in in texts uh, you can look at the uh, the bmj best practice you can look at the oxford handbook of geriatrics and they they all say that the term really shouldn't be used. A lot of falls are multifactorial and they're very, very rarely truly, and again, the air quotes, mechanical in nature. And not only that, it's what is a mechanical fall? I mean, whoever listens to this podcast, you know, from one to one might have a different opinion on, on what mechanical means. Absolutely. And and so some people just use it as, I think a lot of the time it's used by crews to mean a non-syncopal fall and generally to referred to as, as a less concerning fall. But if, uh, if you ask however many different paramedics, different healthcare professionals, what a mechanical fall means to you, you'll get a lot of different, uh, a lot of different answers and a lot of different definitions. And so it's, it's really not a useful term to use. I was listening to a Gemcast podcast uh, on on the term mechanical falls and and uh, the the geriatrician on there puts it quite nicely you wouldn't discharge a patient with the diagnosis of non-cardiac chest pain because that doesn't really tell you a lot and so why are we discharging people with with the term or, or with with the diagnosis of, of mechanical fall it's, it's something that we really need to work hard to to get out of common practice and and i say that as somebody who you could look at my paperwork from just six months ago and it probably would have had the term in it absolutely and i'm and, and, you know looking back at mine and it would have been in there too but I think we need to remember that the, the definition of a fall is an unexpected event that results in a person coming to rest on the ground or on other lower surface. And actually, that could encompass quite a lot. So that does sort of actually encompass loss of consciousness episodes as well. And I think it's really important that we establish the difference between what, what traditionally I would consider a collapse versus a, a fall. But actually, even those terms themselves are used by different medical professionals in different ways. So I think we need to be really clear about the cause of the fall and how we go about then working that patient up. And and like you say, I, th I, th I think there's the danger of investigation stopping at that point. We've uh, I've certainly been to patients where you look on the EPCR system and you can see over the last month they've had seven or eight attendances all for mechanical falls and it's it's very easy for us to go oh that is just another mechanical fall or or they're a regular faller and we have to remember that falling is not a normal part of aging 
it's yeah, I think that's really the, important. The, there's a number of causes for it. We're going to use the term multifactorial a lot, um, but we we if if someone is falling regularly, we need to have clear uh, reasons for that. And there might be it might be the case that we are doing all we can do for them to to mitigate these falls, uh, or, or or we can do practically to mitigate these falls, but that's probably not the case it's probably a case of things needs being unmet or things being under investigated so we've talked um about the questions that you should ask during the history take from the patient in order to establish um you know their their opinion on how they fell um so josh in your mind what sort of um factors do you think influence um why people fall and how often they fall so all of the literature describes these factors as uh, as being intrinsic or, or extrinsic or internal or external factors, however you want to describe it. And there's a number of these that can, can all add up to result in a fall. So the way we need to investigate this is by doing a detailed falls assessment uh, and, and looking for both intrinsic and extrinsic factors that could influence somebody falling. So, so what you're saying, Josh, is basically then going to a patient and saying... Fall on injury, picked up, made a cup of tea and put back to bed is is not good enough sort of assessment and documentation uh, when we're seeing these yes. patients. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, uh, we, we do see that a lot. And yeah, we are we are doing these patients a disservice by not properly assessing the fall. Uh, yes, it is not, a, you know, if they've avoided injury uh, and they they have just fallen to the ground and they haven't collapsed that uh, might seem like a breath of, of fresh air for us, that there's nothing at play there. But really, for this patient, that's not the case. Uh, and if we don't identify these factors, and if we don't help to mitigate these factors, then they are just going to fall again and again. And we are in a unique position where we probably have a fair amount of time to see these patients and to see them in their homes, uh, which our colleagues in hospital don't get a lot you you know they don't get all of those uh cues and clues that we do think, by by attending these patients in uh in their homes i, th I think from speaking from an, an now in hospital and obviously once pre-hospital clinician as well josh is i agree with you completely it's not even so much the time it's the fact that we can't see the environment that this patient came from so even if the patient comes to to hospital because the, the paramedics obviously felt there was concern it's really useful when I work a patient up in ED to be able to see um, a really detailed description from the paramedics of the history of what they asked the patient, you know, how they found the environment, um, you know, the social circumstances around the patient. Because especially if the patient, say, has dementia or, or delirium, I'm not going to be able to get that information necessarily from them unless there's a family member. So actually the paramedics description of, of events is, is so vital to us and, and could make the difference between whether I keep a patient in hospital or send a patient home and the care that I give that patient. In addition to that, identifying and documenting a, a, an accurate falls history is, is really important here as well. So this is becoming ever more possible with the advent of EPCR, with more crews or with more services moving across to an electronic record system. Uh, we can see how many attendances 
the, a, a, a patient has had four falls and we can start to build up and document um, a, a, a picture of what their fall history is like, whether they, they have been falling for a, a long period of time or if they've just had a number of falls and a number of attendances in, in, in a given month. Uh, and, and then we can start asking questions, well, why this month? Why, why has this suddenly happened, uh, happened here? On that point, I, I would just say we probably need to look at previous records with a healthy dose, dose of scepticism because it's it's highly, highly possible that people uh, attending these patients at four o'clock in the morning may have missed things or, or may have just done the pick them up TLC, made a cup of tea and put back to bed and not done a, an in-depth investigation. So where possible, we need to be asking about previous falls history as well. Is that at 6.45, Josh, when the crew finishes at seven? Yep. Uh, not not naming any names. <laughs> no, never. Um, and... and, and... <laughs> And although we, we, we joke about it, it is, it is a serious point. We we can quite easily get carried away with our own biases and our own, you know, we are human and it's easy to go, I'll fall on injury at the end of the day, just pick up, don't investigate too much, just make sure they're comfortable, not injured and, and leave. But actually, that's the, the, I always tell my students that the last job of the day you should treat as the first job of the day mm. and that's a mental uh, a sort of um something that a mentor taught me and i think it's really important that we think about that because we, we don't want to rush and make mistakes you know just because we're, we're finishing uh what we need to do next is assess these patients gait which is again something that uh is all too easy to miss or not do especially if the patient has already got themselves up uh, and got themselves into bed and they're saying oh just just you know le leave me be um, I just want to go back to sleep well whilst we may think we're doing the best for this patient by not assessing them we're, we're not appropriately risk stratifying them uh, and the next fall they have could could be the one where they fracture their hip. So we need to ensure that, that patients are, are uh, getting up. We're visualising them, them get up from a chair. Uh, I know our EPCR system had uh, the get up and go test, which puts patients into, I think it's three categories, it takes 10 seconds to do it, 10 to 20 or over 30 seconds to get up from a chair, walk a given distance and then sit back in the chair. I never did that test and the the reason it's there is because patients that take, I think it's over 20 seconds to perform the test, have a, a much higher risk of falling. There's things like the tandem walking test and the Romberg's test, again, that are all really important tests, especially for our occupational therapy colleagues, for, for stratifying how at risk a patient is from falling. Yeah, I think the get up and go test is, is really important. Um, even if you don't... Um even if we, we don't necessarily understand the scoring, it's more for the, the occupational therapist to do it. I really think it's important that we see a patient mobilise post a fall. It's just a good part of a, a good assessment. Unfortunately, I have been to a patient the next day that had been seen by an ambulance crew uh, in the middle of the night, were picked up and just assisted back to bed. And the next morning, um, the family member came over and they were found um, to be in bed and actually did have a, a knot that was missed. It was impacted and wasn't shortened and rotated uh, and they didn't have any pain the night before. So, you know, these things could be detected uh, if we mobilise the patient, although um, people can walk on knots. So it's, um, 
it's not always um, not always a 100% gold standard test, but it just I think it just adds something good to a part of our examination to be to be thorough. Yeah, absolutely. There's not many things that are a big catch-all, but it's a it's a vital component. Um, on on the the topic of fractures, assessment of an osteoporosis risk is something that's really useful and 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 really important in a falls assessment. Uh, and it it takes seconds. So normally this is done by GPs, and and they're very good at it. But people do slip through the net. So uh, for for us assessing these patients, we need to to look at their their osteoporosis risk. Um. The risk in increases with advancing age and it favours women by a ratio of four to one, particularly women that are postmenopausal. Use of steroids are smokers or are anorexic or have Cushing syndrome. So these are all things that we can just be aware of in our in our history and look to see if the patients are on calcium supplements or vitamin D. Uh, and if they're a regular faller, if they're not on osteoporosis prophylaxis, then a, a, a small GP referral to just see why that isn't the case and, and whether or not we should put them on a, a on a osteoporosis prophylaxis is uh, is a really useful outcome from that patient contact. So moving forward with our false assessment, it's really important to assess visual impairment. Now this sounds really obvious that if you can't see, you're at an increased risk of falling. But how many of us can honestly, hands on heart? ask when the last time our patient had uh, had their prescription updated was uh, and I certainly can't remember doing that in my in my practice as a, as a matter of course and actually it's a really big part that can get missed is the patient's prescription valid or, or, or is it does it need upping were they using their glasses in the first place so quite a lot of our falls are to do with uh, early morning trips to the bathroom and patients will highly likely not be wearing their glasses and not have uh, switched their lights on to, to go to the bathroom. And so, again, this all sounds really obvious, but it's really easy stuff to miss that uh, we need to be informing the patients of this, in, informing how that increases their risk. And, and even something like a, a recommendation to get some night lights or some motion-sensored night lights that, that illuminate the floor uh, on the way to the bathroom could decrease their risk of falling. So when we're looking at um, how a patient mobilises to the bathroom and, and round their property, I think it's really important that we look at and probe into mobility aids. You know, do they walk independently? Do they use a stick or a Zimmer frame or one of the three-wheeled trolleys? Do they need these to get around? Is the floor space clear? Is, is their flat large enough to, to use these safely? And, and is the patient using them correctly? Yeah, and actually on that, I saw someone tweet uh, a, a couple of days ago, which um, w was a really interesting point, especially in the lead up to recording this, that they looked on the underside of uh, the patient's Zimmer frame that they'd had for a, a long period of time. And because uh, previous crews had just gone out and said, uh, they've got a Zimmer frame, they've got a seat raiser, they've got all of this, they don't need a, a, an OT referral. Uh, this paramedic actually looked at the under the side of the Zimmer frame and the, and the grippy feet bits had, had worn worn away. So the Zimmer frame, all, all four feet were actually quite a slippy surface. Uh, and so by just getting a new Zimmer frame and getting more grip and more adhesion to the ground, they probably helped decrease that patient's fall risk and and potentially uh stop them being a regular faller yeah i think it's really important i think uh, as modern paramedics we've got a 
uh, a responsibility to um, to do more as a healthcare professional to reduce and to help promote and that's a really good way that we can do that with our patients by uh, educating them and by referring them on with their permission to to other people to help them out with uh, better um, mobility aids better pieces of equipment at the home uh, and making sure we really have a multidisciplinary approach to managing these complex patients so one of the other things we've talked about trips to the bathroom, what can be really useful is an assessment of urinary continence. Uh, and that's not just looking for urinary symptoms indicative of a UTI. That's things like uh, benign prostatic hyperplasia and overactive bladder system uh, and overactive bladder syndrome. People on high doses of diuretics that are increasing those early morning uh, trips to the bathroom. But of course, we do need to be aware of urinary tract infections and other infections that can increase falls risk. Yeah, UTIs is um, one of my one of my bugbears. To be honest, I, I I won't lie. I get I used to get referrals a lot from crews with you know this lady's uh, urine um, is strong or smelly, and that was the only symptom of a urinary tract infection, and that was the assumed to be the cause of a fall and I, I just I just think we need to be a little bit more in depth when we look around UTIs I think we need to probe more around UTIs uh, around symptoms such as fever frequency of urine dysuria hematuria uh, suprapubic abdominal tenderness during our examination um, and the complaints of pain and I think we just need more symptoms. There's a really good, nice guideline that's just been written uh, on prescribing antibiotics in uh, UTIs. And actually, it does actually say that we shouldn't be doing urine dips on people over the age of 65 routinely, because I think that we, we over-diagnose UTI as a cause and it stops us from looking for other reasons that this patient fell, when actually what we're probably finding is an asymptomatic bacteria that um, is lit up a, a urine dipstick like a Christmas tree, but is not actually causing the patient any symptoms, and therefore is probably not the cause of their fall. Yeah, I know. Um, I know you've certainly been to many a uh, positive urine dips uh, with a temperature for to give antibiotics, and actually found they've got a chest infection or yeah. or, uh, yeah. or something else. Um, so. Good. You, are you done there, Simon? Can you get off yeah, the soapbox sorry, about yeah. UTIs? Yeah, I, I just, I just want to emphasise. I think it's really important. UTI could be the cause, but I think just, just make sure you do a really good um, infection screen. So we look for other causes of infection apart from UTI. Uh, so we're going to look for a chest infection. We're going to look for cellulitis, neurological infections, cardiovascular infections. Just consider other things apart from UTI as a, as a cause, although they are common. Uh, I think we just need to make sure that you know we don't overtreat those and miss the the actual thing that's causing the patient to fall. I think they need to develop a new clinical fallacy, you know, like anchoring and all of that, but one specifically related to UTIs. Yeah, I, I like over sixty five UTI I'd very, diagnosis. Yeah, I'd be very grateful if someone did that, and if they could uh, put it in JR Calc, I'd be even more happier. And so, as a as a final tip close to our to our falls uh, examination as standard we should be doing uh, a cardiovascular examination and a medication review even if we have a really clear history that um, patients have tripped on a mat or something like that we should be doing a cardiovascular examination as, as standard uh, and the, the biggest part of that is postural blood pressures
So I've heard varying thought processes on uh, the evidence behind postural blood pressures. And before I go on to say uh, what I've found, Simon, what are your thoughts on postural Yeah, so like you, I've I've heard multiple um, thoughts on that they are valuable, that they're not valuable. I personally still do them in my practice. I, I will look for a postural drop and orthostatic changes, blood pressure. I think it's quite a commonly diagnosed reason for falls is postural hypertension so i really think that we we should be doing them on on patients that have had falls so the evidence that people often give uh, is a study that relates postural blood pressures not being related to the hemostatic stasis of the patient and and use that as a basis for saying they're unreliable that evidence is for trauma patients only and particularly the the study that's used was done on young patients it doesn't apply to this cohort of patients where postural blood pressure uh, still provides actually quite some useful uh, information and quite useful diagnostic information for us. So 6% of the healthy elderly population will have a postural drop and that increases to 76% of patients that are on a geriatric ward setting. So certainly it's it's potentially going to be evident in, in uh, the patients that we see, particularly in this elderly faller category and that's because as we age the autonomic processes that conduct vasoconstriction to maintain perfusion when we stand up uh, those processes become delayed and lessened Uh, and so as we age we are more susceptible to a postural drop and so just so people know what we mean that's diagnosed as a drop in systolic blood pressure of more than 20 millimeters of mercury or more than 10 millimeters of mercury on the diastolic reading Uh, and that's measured after three minutes of standing so we do an initial blood pressure uh, and then three minutes later we look for that drop and that's how to accurately screen i know it's really common for for patients that don't like standing still for a long period of time they're 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 asking the paramedic can i sit down can i sit down and it's really tempting to just do a a a seated and a standing blood pressure but really we should be measuring it over that three minute period that's actually quite surprised me josh i i do actually do a minute um not three minutes so um i've definitely learned something there and uh that'll be a little change i'll make in my practice another thing that we need to be reviewing as a matter of course is the patient's medication because there is the potential that this could also be adding to uh, the patient's fall risk. So there's there's a bit of varying thought process on this, Simon. So there is some evidence from 28 observational studies that have not shown a conclusive association between any one class of drugs and falling. There's a small association with benzodiazepines, antidepressants and antipsychotics, which I think we can all understand. But just because there's no association with any specific class doesn't mean that with medication adjustments, for example, or new medications being started, uh, that couldn't otherwise influence physiology and and the obvious one is antihypertensive yeah yeah definitely i i would agree with you um obviously antihypertensive antihypertensives especially around polypharmacy so where patients are prescribed multiple drugs could you know interact could be causing some of the patient's symptoms they they might be causing our postural hypertension opiates as well for pain uh could be causing sedation especially if we've got um opiates with antidepressants and opiates with benzodiazepines uh, and any combination of those that might cause, you know, reduced reaction times, change proprioception and, and degrees of sedation. And I also think it's important to think about the medications that might 
cause increased consequence from a fall, such as uh, anticoagulants. If someone falls and, and even has a minor head injury that we, we may otherwise manage at home, obviously, as per NICE guidelines, uh, an anticoagulant should probably be conveyed to hospital for a emergent CT head scan. Uh, okay, so let's move on to management then, because we've talked about assessing this patient. We've talked about the things that led up to their fall, but we actually haven't got this chap off the floor yet. So how how are we going to manage them? Well, obviously, we're provided they're not injured, we're going to get them off the floor. And I'm sure we all use uh, a, a lifting cushion, a manga elk or, or a manga camel, whatever whatever uh, we've been used. Isn't that right, Simon? Yeah, you use that yeah, all the time. I've never used a, a, a bath towel to lift a patient off the floor. No, no, I never no. used a bath towel at all. Uh, or when you've got a student, just uh, a little bit of a little bit of muscle yeah, with all three of you. Um, and, you know, um, we, we, we do need to remember that we paramedics do improvise a little bit and we can safely lift these people off the floor. I'm not a manual handling trainer, but obviously manga elks are designed for, for getting people off the floor. So if you've got one, they are, they are good to use. So... So although although we joke, I absolutely would stand by the, the the towel method because we we've all been in a bathroom with a patient that barely we, we you know we can barely get one of us or you can barely get the patient in there on the floor, uh, let alone a manga camel and all of the 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 power box and cables that go with it. Um, so I do absolutely think there's a room for improvising and using a towel or whatever we can. That's that's what yeah, we best yeah. at I'd, I'd as ambulance staff. Too. But the point I was going to make here was one that was actually raised uh, to me by an ECA colleague a couple of years ago. Uh, and that was actually getting the patient to try and get themselves off the floor because it's all far too easy for us with our perfectly healthy backs to come in and, and scoop these patients off the floor. But what we're doing is, and I don't want to get too uh, hippie about this but what we're doing is we're reinforcing the fact that they needed an ambulance to get off the floor whereas in actual fact if they're uninjured and they can be supported off the floor themselves that's something that we should be trying to support and trying to educate so uh, there's some really good manual handling videos online and I'm going to put one of them in the article that's using a chair and just gently supporting the patient to get themselves onto their knees and stand themselves up and you can use a bed you can use a chair but this would be a really useful technique for those patients that are at home with their you know with their wife or their husband who's of equivalent age and obviously can't scoop them up but could go and get them a chair and could support them up onto their knees uh, and so where that's possible I think it's really important that we use that as a teachable moment not only for the benefit of the patient so they're not spending seven hours on the floor but actually if we're if we're not going to these patients who are getting themselves off the floor then that's that's beneficial for the service and for us as well no, I, yeah I do I do completely agree with you um, if we can get these get these patients to get themselves off the floor by encouraging the correct techniques I, I think that's really really important um, but obviously a lot of the time we can't so um yeah i would uh, i would advocate I, th I think we do obviously people use hoists so i think that the towel method with enough staff is is relatively safe um and then obviously we've got manga elks as well which are really good bits of kit and there's obviously lifting chairs and various other pieces of equipment out there that are designed to get people off the floor um, and i think we just it's important just to use whatever our service provides and whatever we can really to, to get this patient up off the floor and, and comfortable to say the same if the patient um, especially if we're on a car on our own um, and we're waiting for a crew 
backup could be a little while, and I think that you know the risk of a long lie. If the patient isn't injured, I think it's really important that we, if the patient is going to hospital for whatever else, if we can borrow someone and and tell them how to help us get the patient off the floor, I think that's important too to prevent any further consequence. Definitely. While we're on it, uh, do you want to get back on your soapbox and briefly talk about? Um, lift assists in care facilities. Oh yeah, <laughs> what am I? Or or are we we're are we too long on the podcast um, already? So yeah, just quickly. I um I don't know how this works in the in the rest of the country, but my previous ambulance service, we had a, a big uh, issue with um, care facilities just calling us to lift patients off the floor. I'm really happy to say that we launched a massive project and and we we dealt with it really well. Um, we, we started writing to care agencies um, and um, domiciliary care providing agencies about them getting their own patients off the floor and that we would do a telephone assessment for injury off the phone if they needed advice. But um, I think it's really important we get these patients off the floor as soon as possible. Um, and I, I don't think the ambulance service should be being used as just a lifting um, service. I, I think that if there's medical need or if there's uh, trauma injury risk, then absolutely. But um, I think, um, you know, we should be, um, you know, encouraging these organisations to get their own patients off the floor um, early. Well, they've yeah, got a duty yeah, care, do. haven't they? And, and, and it yeah, is in, and, their, and, in the expectations of yeah. a care provider. Yeah, and, and, and no one's supposed to have a no lifting policy. You're supposed to have a safe lifting policy. So uh, I would just say if you, if you do um, come across challenges like that, I, I obviously I would never directly you know have a go at uh, members of staff that, that are at these places because you know they're just following what they're being told but I would go back and report it to your management teams and and look into it as a service as to whether you know the, we could educate these companies to, to you know to get these people off the floor because it's not healthy for a um, an elderly person to be left lying on the floor for hours just waiting for us to pick them up when actually they weren't injured and they were relatively well um, and they actually then have to go to the hospital because you know, they've got a rhabdomyolysis risk because they've had a long lie. And just because we have well gone over on this topic, in 30 seconds, referrals. Should we be referring every full patient we go to to occupational therapy or to falls teams? Or what criteria should we be referring? So I think we need to use a little bit of clinical judgment here. I think, you know, an isolated fall, uh, if you've gone to someone who's really mobile, has, you know, is independent with no package of care and just happened just to, say, catch their foot on a curb or happened just to slip on a wet floor in a bathroom and it's the first and only fall they've had, then, then no, I don't think it's necessarily to refer on. But I, I think if there's any risk factors from what we were talking earlier, your intrinsic extrinsic risk factors, and you think there's further risk for falling, or there um, is multiple falls and we've been multiple times, then then yes, a referral to a full service and notifying the GP is is important. Okay, so so in summary, then this is this is a group of patients that is far more complicated than a simple mechanical fall that we can go in, pick up, and put back to bed. There is a lot more to falls risk and causes of falls than simply a syncope or tripping on a mat. And it's our job as independent clinicians to screen for these 
and to appropriately refer on if if needed or correct ourselves if possible we need to be doing a detailed assessment we need to be going in with an open mind and a healthy dose of skepticism just because there's been six mechanical falls in the past that we've attended doesn't mean that they were actually mechanical falls and of course i'm using that term in air quotes we need to uh, look at those previous ECGs that say NSR just to confirm that we're happy that they were normal sinus rhythm. There's not anything that might have been missed or glanced over on previous attendances. We need to be getting these patients off the floor in a timely fashion if they're uninjured uh, and we need to give consideration to whether or not we need to do that or perhaps next time we go to one of these patients we can try using alternative methods to encourage them to get themselves off the floor and I think crucially we need to be educating these patients. There are a lot of modifiable risk factors that can be down to the patient to take care of such as ensuring you've got your glasses on and got your got lights on in a lit hallway and a decluttered hallway and so by educating them to the risks associated with falls and the risks associated with things like necophema fractures hopefully we can encourage our patients to take heed of our advice and and minimize their falls risk and be mindful that not every falls caused by a UTI and not every fall is called by UTI. Thank again. you, Simon. <laughs> okay, well, that's the end of this episode. Thank you very much for uh, for listening. There will, of course, be a full write-up of the article on our website, generalbroadcast.org.uk. If you've got any feedback for us on the podcast or uh, about the article or for any uh subjects you'd like us to cover next time you can send an email to us at generalbroadcastpodcast at outlook.com and make sure to subscribe and tune in for the next one thank you